If you'll grab your outline real quickly and just look at the top, you can see we're going to be talking about prayer today. And you'll notice this outline's a little bit different than most that we have given you. My hope is that this will be sort of an infographic around prayer, something that you could actually fold up and put in your Bible and go back to again and again, because we're talking about prayer 101 this morning. This is as basic and as straightforward as it could be. Now, before we get into the text, I thought I would take us back to maybe some of those first prayers that we prayed as uh, little bitties. So uh, here's one you might have might have prayed, God is great, God is good, and we thank him for our food. Amen. Let's dig in. How many of you prayed that one? Yeah, of course. Now, for those who may have been more inclined toward the King James Version, a little bit of a, an uptake there. Bless us, O Lord, and these thy gifts we are about to receive from thy bounty through Christ our Lord. I don't know how many children could get all those these and thys out, But uh, that was another one that we heard at the dinner table. Then at nighttime, uh, this was one that I often prayed. Uh, Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. I started thinking about what that was like to pray as a little kid. Like, what if I die tonight? That's a little (laughs) troubling. So there's actually a more positive version Try this one on, same start. Now I lay me down to sleep. Pray the Lord my soul to keep. Guide me safely through the night. Wake me with the morning light. I like that one. I wish I had known that as a child. As we get into chapter 11 in the Gospel of Luke, uh, we come to one of the most well-known and familiar teachings on prayer. But it's not just there. Actually, the whole gospel is called the gospel of prayer because there's so many places where prayer is emphasized and explained. Uh, Craig Bartholomew, who wrote the book Revealing the Heart of Prayer, says this about the gospel of Luke. It is clear that we have in Luke's gospel more than isolated, unrelated instances of prayer. Luke associates prayer with the forward thrust of God's redemptive drama. Luke reveals various ways in which God is already guiding salvation history. And prayer is a means of human perception of and thus participation in what God is doing. I love that. It's a great description. So as we come to chapter 11, verse 1... Here's the situation that we find. Jesus is praying in a certain place, Luke says. And that was not uncommon. We do find several references to him entering into prayer in a variety of places and a variety of circumstances. But look what happens next. It says, when he was finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Now that's kind of curious, maybe a little comical. I'm I'm imagining the disciples maybe all kind of in a half circle sort of waiting silently and like not disturbing, letting Jesus kind of finish up his prayer. And when he's done, you know, then they kind of step in. That's probably not how it went down. But nevertheless, the disciples surely noticed that there was a difference 
between the way Jesus prayed and everybody else that they heard, don't you think? Not only that, it was common for religious leaders to give their disciples a, a formal sort of rote prayer that they could memorize. And it was a way for them to have that in common and actually have a shared identity as a group as they're talking with God. So that was very common and that's probably what they're asking for. That's why the disciple references John. It's like, hey, John's crew had a prayer. Can you give us a prayer too so that we can kind of have our own thing? That's what's, that's what's going on here. Now, I like uh, what A.B. Bruce says about a, a rationale for this request. He wrote the book, which I highly recommend, Training of the Twelve. There's a great section in there about the Lord's Prayer, and here's what he says. Prayer is a necessity of spiritual life, and all who earnestly try to pray soon feel the need of teaching how to do it. Can you relate to that? I've heard people pray over the course of my life and been a little bit wowed and overwhelmed and became a little bit insecure. I'm like, wow, I like, how do you talk to God like that? I, I have felt that. I have felt the need for teaching. Paul Miller in his book, A Praying Life, says this, if you're not praying, then you are quietly confident that time, money, and talent are all you need in life. I imagine all of us fall somewhere on that spectrum of maybe endeavoring in prayer and feeling a little bit unsure or perhaps not praying at all and honestly trusting in our own resources instead of in God. Here's a great reassurance for you. I came across this this week. The fact that prayer can be taught means that prayer can be learned. So that's what we're doing this morning. We're gonna learn about prayer. Now, in response to this request, Jesus is gonna teach his disciples, but it, it's not so much about how to pray as it is about who we're praying to. Now, we, we read this prayer and we think, okay, I gotta get the words and the phrases and all that right. It, it is a prayer that is meant to be repeated, but it's way more than that. This prayer, and as we're talking with God, it's actually intended to help us see God for who he really is and why we should be praying to him to begin with. So we're going to think about this as the ABCs of prayer. This is a template or a pattern or a model that we can surely pray just as it is written, but it informs just about every prayer we might ever pray in this life. I want to have us say this prayer together, and then we'll dig down into it. Set, read this with me. It's up on the screen. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. All right. A couple of general comments about this before we actually get down into the text. First of all, um, this is very similar but not exactly like what is known as the Lord's Prayer in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 6. 
Those two prayers are not in conflict with one another. Matthew's is a little bit longer. There's a little more material there, but they are not in conflict with one another. They're just simply representations of the same idea. Luke's prayer is more concise. They were taught in different settings. So in Matthew's gospel, it's in the, Lord, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. It's included in that, all of that material. So apparently Jesus taught in that context. But don't you imagine, if this is the model for prayer, he probably taught it more than once. And so in Luke's gospel, we get his teaching in response to the disciples' request. Two different settings, same general prayer. Lastly, how many of you grew up with a different ending than what you read here that actually is absent here? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. A beautiful ending. Certainly true, consistent with all that is revealed about God in the Bible. There's just one little problem. It doesn't appear in the original manuscripts that we have of this gospel or the gospel of Matthew. Now, I don't mean that to trouble you. I just mean to say, if you read through your modern translations, you won't find it, and that's for good reason. This was added later by the church because... Honestly, didn't it feel just a minute ago that you're saying this prayer? Jesus says, this is the model prayer, and it ends with, and lead us not into temptation. <laughs> like, isn't there something else? But there wasn't. This is exactly how it was recorded. So, nothing wrong with that doxology. It just doesn't appear here. Now, what is the big idea? What I want to do is I want to start really big, and then we're going to work our way down into the details, and then we're going to come back out to the big picture. So here's a big declaration about prayer. Prayer is a relational pursuit, a relational pursuit of all that God is, not only what he can do. But you know, when we pray, if you're like me, <laughs> I'm so mindful of what I need and what I want right now. That, that's my most natural direction to go with prayer. But this tells me, and this model prayer tells me, there's way more before I get to my needs and wants. And it has everything to do with who God is. And it's a relational pursuit of him. I pray to connect with him, to pursue his heart, his character, his attributes. And so now that's where we'll start. We're gonna hit three big themes. I'm just mentioning these to you. You can fill them in on your outline, but three big things that are, uh, themes that are represented in this prayer. The first is God's glory. The first thing that Jesus wanted his disciples to focus their attention on was God's glory. That's in the first part of the prayer. Then in the middle part, we get to God's authority. It's important if we're going to come to God with needs and or wants for ourselves or for others, we need to know that God has the authority to answer those prayers, to act on our behalf, to do as we have asked him to do. And so we're told to focus at, at some point in here on his authority. And finally, we're told to focus on God's care. So God's glory, God's authority, and God's care. Now, corresponding to these three attributes or themes that we find in the prayer, there's also assumed 
a human response to those things. The first is, if we really get God's glory, if we really understand that, what it does in us and what we see as people encounter God is we are awestruck. Now, you can fill in with any other synonym you want to, but the bottom line is when we see God for who he really is, the first thing that it does is bowls us over. He's God and we're not. He is glorious and holy and righteous. We are beneath him. And he is worthy of our praise. We're awestruck. And that's how we're told to begin this prayer. Then as we see his authority, our response is to be submissive. See, there really is a relationship between us and God. And his absolute sovereign authority puts us in a position of submission. And, that, and rightly so. He's the creator, we're created. So we are walking in response to him. And then finally, and I love this, when we really get God's care, it prompts us to be dependent. It, it, it draws us in to ask him to meet our most pressing needs. So the content that we have in Luke's gospel and in Matthew's as well, but that's known as the Lord's Prayer, this is really just a verbalization of these responses. So as we're praying the Lord's Prayer, we are awestruck, we are submissive, and we are dependent, and we're just saying those things. This prayer is a model of those responses, and that's how we were instructed by Christ to pray. So with all that, let's look at this prayer in detail. It begins with a simple name, Father. Not teacher, not master, not Lord, not friend. Although all of those are true of God, right? It starts with Father. Isn't that interesting? And if Christ tells his disciples to approach God that way, to speak to him, to name him that way, it must mean that that's how God wants to be viewed. Like he wants us to enter into prayer, first of all, seeing him as father. Now, here's where that might be really difficult. We've all got a story, right? I, I don't know what your family of origin is, but there's a really good chance that your dad did not approach <laughs> the quality of God, right? And so there is this gap. For some of us, it may be very small. For some of us, it may be infinite. And so when we come to God and we say, Father, <laughs> man, what in the world does that mean? You don't have any reference point. You're going to have to learn what a good father is. Nevertheless, that's how Christ instructed us to come to God Almighty, call him Father. Enter into that intimate connection. Now, God is not the father of all. Honestly, what we were celebrating in baptism this morning is the movement of a person who was not in the family of God, moving into the family of God by grace through faith. So 
not just anybody can call him father, only those who have been adopted into his family. Just jot down Ephesians 1, Galatians 4, Romans 8, all of which speak of this theological idea of God adopting us as his own because we have placed our trust in him. So the question as we come to this prayer is, who's your daddy? Can you call him father? If not, you've got a much more important thing to deal with than any needs or wants that might come to mind. You need to establish a familial relationship with the God of the universe. I love what uh, John Calvin says about this particular reference. He says, by the sweetness of this name, Father, he frees us from all distrust. That is beautiful. Having referred to God in this way, Jesus says, pray this, hallowed be your name. Now, some other translations will uh, translate that. Your name be honored as holy. That's a little easier for us to understand. Not, of, not many of us use the, the term hallowed anymore. That's okay. But um, here's the idea. Hallowed means sanctified, set apart, honored, esteemed, revered. The idea here is that the name of God would be treasured, would be magnified, would be exalted in a way that's appropriate to it. So the idea is I, I say father, and then my, the next words out of my mouth are, I want your name to be held up above every other name that will ever be uh, spoken in this world throughout all of its history until you return. That's the heart here. God's name is sacred and his children are to pray that it is treated as such, not only in their life, but in the world around them. This is really a longing. This is a petition or a request, um, but it's a longing for the incomprehensible reality of God. I know that's a big word, but I just want you to take that in. We, we can't ever shrink God down into a little box of understanding where we get everything about him. He is knowable, but not everything that is true of God can be known by us because he's God. So this statement is a longing for the incomprehensible reality of God's holiness to be acknowledged and celebrated by finite humanity to whatever degree is possible. That's the heart behind that statement. The request is that God's reputation be revered, simply put. So do you see how? What's happening is Jesus is saying, I want you to focus on the glory of God. It's not a distant glory, it's a familial glory, but it's glory nonetheless. And you're to begin by saying, Lord, I want you to be high and lifted up. That's where I want to start. And then I'm going to move into and toward the needs that I have. Before we get to the needs, we come to what most will consider the pinnacle of this model prayer. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is that place where we are confronted, honestly, with our own self-absorption. Jesus says, pray this, your kingdom come. 
Whose kingdom? Whose kingdom? Yeah, God's kingdom. <laughs> See, we're kingdom builders, aren't we? It's just as natural as breathing. Like I want to set up my kingdom and I have got a great idea about what it's like, how it works, who's in charge. I mean, I am a great kingdom builder. And so I come to God and I say, God, I've got this awesome idea about a kingdom and I want to share it with you. And I'm sure that when you hear it, you're really going to want to get on board with this thing. And I, I want to ask you to build my kingdom. You ever heard that kind of praying before? Like God answers to us? And Jesus says, no, nothing could be further from the truth. Pray this, your kingdom come, be here, present, in charge, ruling everything. That's what I want. My kingdom doesn't begin to approach or compare with God's kingdom. That's the one I want. Our hearts are, uh, as Jeff mentioned, even a little bit, they're, they're, they're called idol makers, right? We, we find our own stuff that we love and we go after and all that kind of thing. Paul Miller, again, in his book, A Praying Life, says the heart is one of God's biggest mission fields. And this phrase is his attack on that mission, going into our hearts and exposing. We see an illustration of this dilemma in John 3 with John the Baptist. So his disciples are with him and uh, they come to John and they go, yo, John, your disciples are leaving and they're going to that guy, Jesus. I mean, how do you feel about that? Your kingdom is kind of losing traction around here. You probably need to do something. I mean, spice it up. Get, get some attention. Draw those guys back. Here's what John says. He, that is Jesus, must increase. And I must decrease. Your kingdom come. Take all my disciples away. Take everything that I've got. I come to you submissive to your authority. You don't answer to me, God. I answer to you and I'm glad about it because you'll, you'll put together a better kingdom than I ever could. This is appeal, an appeal for God's lordship. It's inviting him to be Lord over our lives. So we've seen Jesus instructing us to think about God's glory and God's authority. I love how Tim Keller sums this up in his book on prayer. He says, adoration and thanksgiving, which is God-centeredness, comes first because it heals the heart of its self-centeredness. You see what's happening here? That self-centeredness curves us in on ourselves and distorts all our vision. Now that the prayer is nearly half over, and our vision is reframed and clarified by the greatness of God, we can turn to our own needs and those of the world. That's the order. 
It's really important that we keep that in order. God's glory, God's authority. And now we get to look at God's care. The first request, probably the one we are most familiar with and have prayed most often, give us each day our daily bread. Now, one quick uh, highlight here. Notice it's not give me each day my daily bread. It's plural. Isn't that interesting? The model prayer (laughs) is focused on the collective, not on the independent. So when we come to the Lord and pray, we're supposed to be mindful of those around us, not only of ourselves. In the request for daily bread, that harkens back to Exodus 16 when Israel was um, delivered from the oppression of Egypt. And as they were out in the wilderness, they began to grumble. The Lord must have just brought us out here to die. What are we supposed to eat anyway? And the Lord says, I'm gonna give you manna or bread every day. You'll wake up in the morning and it's gonna be right out in front of you. And then I'm gonna send quail in the evening. So, you know, keto, gluten-free, I'm not sure what was going on there, but he's giving them what they need every day. And he instructed them, only take what you need. Because he knew there's some sharp cats in there that are saying, okay, now, you know, if I were to get a week's worth, then I wouldn't have to go out and pick all that manna off the ground every day. I just have my own supply. But that's not what God told them to do. He said, go out and get just enough for today. And tomorrow, I will give you what you need for tomorrow. And I'm gonna do it day in and day out. You can trust me. Some folks didn't take God up on that. They gathered a little extra. It rotted and became infested with maggots. Read about it in Exodus 16. He's just going, look, guys, I know what you need more than you do. I will give you what you need if you will trust me. So pray. Give us as a community each day our daily bread. Necessities, not luxuries. Now, here's a question for you. If God were to answer that prayer very strictly, if he only gave you what you needed for today, how would you respond? Would you be disappointed? Maybe even angry? Like God somehow didn't come through for you? I mean, he gave you what you needed, but no more. See, this is getting at the heart of things, isn't it? We are meant to come to God knowing that he cares for us and asking just for him to meet our needs and being joyfully content with that. So another question is, it hasn't been many days where I've had only what I needed. I'd say for most of my life, I've had far more. I've had excess So the other question is, what do you do with your excess? I'll just let you ponder that. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 30, remove far from me falsehood and lying. 
Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? That's excess. Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. That's a heart of dependence and it's a heart of trust. Knowing the care of God. The next need is a spiritual one. Jesus says, pray this, forgive us our sins. Notice again the plural, not the singular. Um, So sin is missing the mark. That's the definition for it. And it basically has anything to do with our disobedience, either to what the Lord has said to do and we don't do it, or what he's told us not to do and we do it. So that's all covered under the umbrella of sin. And sin separates us from God. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Spiritual separation and from Genesis 3 there was a physical implication as well. But nevertheless, we need forgiveness. The prayer is using indebtedness as a picture of what our sin cost. That cost is death. And so somebody's got to pay it. And here's the deal. It's either going to be you or Jesus. Those are the only two options. No one on earth anywhere in history can pay your debt for you. It's either you eternally separated from God. That's the death that's being referred to here. Or Jesus can stand in your place. He can be your perfect, sinless substitute. He can die the death you and I deserved. And then all you have to do is just say, I want him to be my substitute. I I want his blood to cover my sin so that I can be forgiven. If you've done that, it's a done deal. It's a once and for all. There is this moment again where we go from death to life, where we were orphans and now we're adopted. We were in the kingdom of darkness and we're moved into the kingdom of the beloved son, all because we have transferred our trust from ourselves over to Christ. And and it's that first prayer of these words, forgive us our sins. That's what you're doing. You're saying, Lord, I need you to forgive me because if you don't, I'm guilty and dead in my sin forever. The Lord always answers that question, yes, and brings you into his family, covers you with the righteousness of Christ and assures you in eternity with him. So this is a little curious, honestly. Why do I have to keep praying, forgive us of our sins, right? If I did it one time and I'm I'm good, why, why do I keep doing this? Well, how many of you stopped sinning the day you came to Christ? Is there anybody here? Yeah, I didn't think so. So, though sin does not separate us eternally, relationally from God, 
It distorts, it disturbs, it disrupts our fellowship or our intimacy with God. And so when we pray, forgive us our sins, what we're saying is, I want to apply the permanent solution that you made for me to my failure today. I want to clean that up and get back into right fellowship with my father. That's what I'm praying here. Forgive me for my sin. This statement is a a combination of three things. Contrition, which is godly sorrow. It means, Lord, I'm really sorry that I did what I did. I know it was wrong. That leads into confession, which is an agreement with God. I am agreeing with you. This is sin. And it is, that sin was what sent Christ to the cross. So I need forgiveness. And then finally, repentance. When I'm, when I'm praying this prayer, forgive us our sins, I'm saying I'm turning away from my own way and I'm turning toward you. And I wanna walk in fellowship with you. Now, If that weren't complicated enough, we get this little conditional clause in here, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. So it sounds like God should forgive us because we've forgiven everybody else that has sinned against us. How many of you have done that perfectly? How many of you have someone today? That's just a hard thing. Like you, you don't want to let them off the hook. You want to make them pay. So isn't it strange that we come to God and we say, forgive me. I can't do anything about it on my own. I'm sorry, but I did it. Will, will you do for me what I can't do for myself? And then... When it comes to someone who sinned against us, we go, nope, not a chance, no way, can't do it. See how strange that is? This really isn't a condition except for our experience, again, of what God has already done on our behalf. So withholding forgiveness is sin just like any other sin. And if I come to God and I say, please forgive me, but I'm just gonna keep on sinning, that is gonna stand in the way of my fellowship, my intimacy with my father. So he's putting this prayer in here to bring to our attention, you want forgiveness from God and he has provided that for you. Let that go through you to all of those who have sinned against you. That's the way it's supposed to work. And here's the deal. The cross of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cover our sin against God and it's sufficient to eradicate our need to withhold forgiveness from those who have sinned against us. Now, I'm not saying this is some switch that you just flip and you're just all good tomorrow. But I'm saying you come back to this prayer again and again and again and ask the Lord to bring you to a place where you are so in awe of his forgiveness that he has granted to you that you're glad to give it away.
Lastly, lead us not into temptation. A couple of quick passages. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So why are we praying, Lord, don't lead me into temptation if God doesn't do that? Good question. The phrase is actually a statement of vulnerability. here's Here's the idea. It's basically saying to God, I am committing myself to following you without any reservation. I am so committed to following you that if you were to lead me into temptation, I'm done. I'm flat on my face. So please don't lead me into temptation. I know that you won't, but I am am so committed to following you that I need you to lead me to life. Now, here's the promise, 1 Corinthians 10. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, if you're following, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Lord, don't lead me into temptation, but show me that way of escape every time. And then give me a heart to trust in your care and to follow you in a path that leads to life. That's the ABCs of prayer. You can pray this daily. You can pray it word for word, but let this be a template, a model for you as you come to prayer in any situation. Focus in on God's glory, his authority, and his care for you. Take just a moment, if you would, and ask the Lord to to highlight whatever it is in this prayer that you needed to be reminded of today. Maybe there is an action point, a, a step that you need to take in response to this. You may have realized today that God is not your father. And so my encouragement to you would be to say to him, I need Christ. Forgive me of my sin. Do for me what I can't do for myself. And I'll I'll tell you, if you make that decision today, please, I would love to talk with you after uh, the worship gathering and uh, point you in the direction of some encouraging resources that will help you grow in that relationship going forward. So take a moment, pray to the Lord, ask him to guide you in response to this message.